Blessings to all of you out there. You are listening to JOY, a podcast from St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. I am the Reverend Mary Vano. Today, I'm with my good friend, the very Reverend Barkley Thompson, and together we're going to break some taboos. Most of us were raised on the notion that it is not polite to talk about religion or politics, and today we are going to talk about both. Don't worry, we are not here to tell you what to think or who to vote for, but we are going to talk about how people of faith can approach our civic duties. Barkley, thank you for taking on this challenge with me. It's my honor. I'm glad to be here. It's true that talking about politics and religion is not polite, but then again, Jesus was rarely polite. So I'm looking forward to the conversation. Barkley is the Dean of Christ Church Cathedral in Houston, Texas. He is originally from Paragould, Arkansas and a graduate of Hendricks College. He also has degrees from the University of Chicago and the Seminary of the Southwest in Austin, Texas, which is where we became friends 20 years ago. So Barkley, I introduced you as the very reverend, and I think some of our listeners might be curious about that. Would you just start by telling us about that title and what makes you so reverend? In the Episcopal Church, we have a lot of archaic titles. The dean of a cathedral or the dean of a seminary is the very reverend. A bishop is the right reverend. An archbishop or presiding bishop is the most reverend. I'm part of the North American Deans Conference, which consists of all of the cathedral deans in Canada and the United States. And when the deans at the Deans Conference think about our title versus a bishop's title, the very reverend and the right reverend, the slogan of the Deans Conference is, it's better to be very than right. It means nothing other than I'm the dean of a cathedral. So, Barkley, you're also an avid writer, and you've published many articles and even a couple of books, one of which is In the Midst of the City, The Gospel and God's Politics. In the beginning of that book, you write that as Christians, we must begin with the gospel and allow the gospel to shape our politics whole cloth. That could sound like a really radical statement because there are plenty of people who prefer to keep religion and politics totally separate. Tell us more about what you mean by allowing the gospel to shape our politics. Well, I think we'd usually do it the other way. We bring to bear our social views, our political views, the ways that we look at the world, and sometimes those are uncritical. We simply share the views of the milieu or the family in which we were raised, and we parrot or ape those views in our own lives. Or we have come to those views through our own evolution and our own growth as people. But in either case, whether the views that we hold are critically held or uncritically held, almost always we hold those views, our social and political lens through which we view the world, are at the basis of who we are and how we interact. We only go to Scripture in order to prop up those views in its most, I think, caricatured form. That's proof texting. We have a view we want to substantiate, so we go plumbing the Bible to find the verse or the verses, wrench them out of context to Mm -hmm. support that. And we do that a lot. More often, though, I think it's more amorphous than that. Everyone has a what's sometimes called a canon within the canon. We have books of the Bible that we like more than others, or parts of books of the Bible, stories within the Bible that we love more than others. And we tend to gravitate to those books or those stories that prop up and support the views we already bring to bear. I argue both in my book and generally that that's an act from the beginning. That's an act of unfaith. 
that our lives of faith and scripture demand that we first plumb scripture, that we let it become our lodestone. It should form us first, and only through our studied reading of scripture should we even form our political and social views. The famous 20th century theologian Karl Barth said, take your Bible and take your newspaper and read both, but interpret the newspaper from your Bible, never the other way around. What that means is, if we are lifelong students of Scripture, our social and political views, I believe, will transform and change. And I don't mean just once. I don't mean that they'll transform and change once, and then they'll solidify and we'll have it right. Because Scripture is a living text, and every time we go to it, it breathes some new facet of truth, of God's truth to us. And every time that happens, it may, it will shift how we view the world. I am a big believer that Christians who are students of Scripture are rarely able to be easily categorized as liberal or conservative, as democratic or republican, as libertarian or interventionist. I think that Christians who are faithful students of Scripture will be all over the map. The gospel is impossible to pin down. It's like trying to pin down a sunbeam. It can't be done. I have had people say to me before, I want politics kept out of religion, and the challenge there is that Jesus was inherently political. I think that's an interesting point that you make, because I see that politicians in our culture right now, they are often criticized when their record shows that they've changed their minds. It's as if we expect our politicians to be totally uncompromising and to learn nothing (laughs) as they go, which I think is a ridiculous notion. So I actually think it can be understood positively when politicians or when people of faith evolve in how they think about things over time. We even see that in this Sunday's scripture passage, where it appears, and theologians and biblical scholars have tried to explain it away for 2,000 years, but it appears that even Jesus' worldview changes. When the Canaanite woman comes to Jesus, she's a Gentile, she's a foreigner, her daughter is possessed. I mean, she's an outsider. She's a woman in a patriarchal environment, so she's four times an outsider. And at first, Jesus ignores her pleas, and then Jesus actually uses some dehumanizing words to describe her. But as she persists in her faith and vulnerability, even Jesus's point of view changes. His perspective on the world around him shifts and morphs, and he comes to a deeper realization of God's truth. I'm a big believer that one reason it's impossible for politics to be kept out of the church is that the word politics refers to the polis. It refers to the commonweal. The gospel to me more than anything else, as Jesus says in his very first words of ministry, is about the inbreaking or the advent of God's kingdom in the world, in the commonweal. And so if we believe that that inbreaking is occurring in subtle but constant ways, then it must be the case that we change and evolve as we encounter the kingdom in new ways throughout our lives. example, Barclay, of how we might apply the gospel to a particular issue? 
I think in order to do that, I want to make the point throughout the book that I wrote, when I use the term gospel, I'm not referring to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When I use the term gospel, I am suggesting that the entire sweep and trajectory of Scripture from the first day of creation until the final fulfillment in the last chapter of Revelation, that that entire sweep and trajectory is the gospel. It's God's good news, the word of God's good news being breathed into the world. I would probably look at the topic of immigration until COVID-19 and until some of the racial issues that have come back to the forefront after George Floyd's death and others. Immigration was huge and the crisis at the border was huge. And while I don't think that there is any specific response that Christian people are called to have to the exclusion of all others. In other words, I don't think that it is necessary that a Christian be in favor of open borders, for instance. I do think that the sweep and trajectory of Scripture and of the gospel is consistently about broadening the bounds of who is to be included in the flourishing and the largesse and the grace of God's kingdom. And so, for instance, we see that in Ruth, where Ruth, if you look in Deuteronomy, for instance, the Moabite is listed along with the eunuch as like <laughs> the people who are so far beyond the bounds of grace. Deuteronomy says that the Moabite will be excluded from the house of the Lord until the 10th generation, which is just another you know, biblical way of saying forever. We get to Ruth, where the Moabite, she is a Moabite, she comes into the land of the promise with her mother-in-law, Naomi, and she has that wonderful speech where Naomi says, our husbands have died, I'm going to go back to the land of my forefathers, my ancestors, you stay in Moab where you can marry again and have a life. And Ruth gives that speech that we all yearn to hear someone utter in our own lives, which is, no, whither you go, I will go. Where you live, I'll live. Where you die, I'll die. Your people will be my people. Centuries later, that speech by Ruth was taken by the rabbis and turned into a catechism to learn what it means to be a Jew. The Moabite, the one who was by definition on the outside forever, became the model for what it meant to be a person of God, a person who cleaves to God and knows God and lives through God's grace. So the outsider, the foreigner, the one who's not one of us, becomes the model for what it means to be a child of God. You can also look to something like Jeremiah 7, which is a wonderful passage where people are going to church. It's the temple, but it, for us, it would be the church. People are going to church, and they're singing hymns, and it's beautiful, and they're putting on their finery, and they're saying, this is the house of the Lord, this is the house of the Lord. And in Jeremiah 7, God says, if you truly amend your ways and your doings, if you act justly towards one another, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, and the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, then I will dwell with you in this place and in this land. So the Hebrew has the qualifier if three times. If we go to church, in other words, and we claim that we're all in for God, and that we claim we're all in for the gospel, but at the same time, we're ignoring the alien, which in this case specifically means the foreigner living among us or seeking to live among us, then we ought not to think God's in that house of worship with us. God is out there with the alien. God is out there with the immigrant. All we're doing is play acting. If we think that we can go to church without having first responded with grace and open arms to the foreigner in need. That sweep and trajectory extends all the way through the literal, the actual Gospels with Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, 
all the way to Revelation, where the gates of the city of God at the end of time are wide open. There are no walls. Gates are perpetually open. The river of life flows in and out of the holy city. That trajectory goes from the Moabite is always on the outside to there is no inside and outside. The gates are always open. And I don't think that Christian women and men can approach the challenging issue of immigration without acknowledging that that is the trajectory of Scripture when it comes to issues of insiders and outsiders, immigrants and aliens. We as Christians might have different approaches to what legal solutions there may be to manage our society. But also as Christians, we cannot be unconcerned about the welfare of others. It would be one way of saying it, maybe. I think that, yes, exactly. But I think with just a little more specificity, Mm -hmm. in this case, what Scripture is saying in the examples that I cited is a particular kind of person in need. We cannot ignore the plight of the immigrant and the alien. How we respond to that plight, there are lots of differing views. And this is a great example in which my own, you know, I serve in Houston, Texas. And so we're a minority majority community. The majority of our community are Hispanic women and men, Latino and Latina people. We're much closer to the border with Mexico than a lot of other places. So this issue is front and center to me working in downtown Houston, Texas every day of my life. But whatever our ultimate response is, it must be informed by our reading of Scripture. Part of the title of your book is God's Politics. What other passages of Scripture inform us about God's politics and how we as Christians ought to engage politically? I would point to many of those passages that traditionally have been interpreted as calls to charity. And I would argue that read with a little more nuance, they're calls to justice. Again, because I'm in Houston, Texas, I have taken over the last seven and a half years, I have taken to thinking things with oil and gas analogies, which is, <laughs> by the way, a harder political issue for me to engage because uh-huh. it's, it is our bread and butter. That doesn't mean we can ignore it either. So in oil and gas, we talk about downstream and upstream, and charity is downstream. Charity is the way at the end of the road, you have the hungry person or the homeless person. How do you address that? And by the way, at the cathedral, we do. We run the Beacon, which is the largest day center for the homeless in greater Houston. 300 women, in, well, before COVID, feed 300 women and men five days a week since COVID, because most of the other shelters are closed. We're feeding 500 people seven days a week. So downstream charity, I'm not suggesting that it's unimportant, but I am suggesting that in Matthew 25, for instance, when Jesus talks about feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting those in prison, I believe Jesus is also talking about addressing the conditions that lead to hunger, addressing the conditions that lead to homelessness, addressing the conditions that lead to mass incarceration. And if you start to address those preceding conditions, you're into politics and justice work more than you're into only the work of charity. So I'd point to something like Matthew 25, and in the book itself, and this doesn't come from me, this originally comes from John Crossan and Marcus Borg, I actually became really entranced by the stories from Mark 11 and the other Gospels of the Palm Sunday procession. When we realize that Jesus, and I've now been to the Holy Land a couple of times, so I've I've actually done this walk. Jesus enters from the Mount of Olives in the east, coming west on the donkey. Historically, about the same time from the other direction, coming from Caesarea on the coast, Pontius Pilate 
the Roman governor would have been marching into the city on a war horse that's leading a chariot with Roman soldiers and the Roman golden eagle standard from the other direction. So Pilate is coming into the city saying to the Jews who've all gathered in Jerusalem for Passover, the God you think is God is not really God. Caesar is God. Caesar calls the shots. What Caesar calls virtue is virtue. What Caesar calls vice is vice. And don't forget it. And marches into the city in procession with all the pomp and power of Rome to make sure that the Jews understand who's boss. Well, Jesus is coming in from the other direction. He knows what he's doing. It's not that he can tell the future. It's that he knows his Bible. And so he's enacting Zechariah 9, where Zechariah talks about the king coming in on the foal of a donkey. And so Jesus is intentionally satirizing. Jesus had a good sense of humor and an understanding of satire. Jesus Mm -hmm. is satirizing in his Palm Sunday procession a parody of what Pilate's doing, as if to neuter the power of Rome and say, forget that. God is God. The God and the gospel that we follow is so powerful that we not only can say that Caesar is not God, we're going to ridicule Caesar, right? We're going <laughs> to parody Caesar. And so John Crossan and Marcus Borg say in their great book, The Last Week, that what Jesus is saying is there are two processions and we have to choose in which one we will march. We either march in the procession of Caesar, the way of the world, might makes right, or we process in the procession of Jesus and of the gospel and of the God of grace and goodness. And so to me, at the end of the day, that is the convicting passage for me. Passages like Matthew 25 or the passage from Jeremiah I read about taking care of the orphan and the widow, those are consequence. But the premise is that Palm Sunday procession. We have to choose in which procession we march. And it is a binary choice. You choose one or the other. You can't march in each of them a little bit. ago, Jesus is not apolitical. So if we are choosing to follow Jesus, we're choosing to follow that mission of the kingdom of God. Back 20 years ago, when we were in seminary, we learned the word prolepsis, (laughs) those theological terms I love. And to live proleptically means to live now as if the future's already happened. And to me, at the end of the day, what it means for a Christian to be political is not to have a particular opinion on a particular issue, but to live today as though God's kingdom, finally described in the last chapter of Revelation, is already fulfilled. And so we as Christians, as the church, are supposed to be a leaven and a witness to the whole world, so that if people not Christian ponder to themselves, what would it look like for God's purposes to be fulfilled? They look to the church, and we are living that way now. That's the binary choice, too, because that's hard. It's a whole lot easier to only live that way occasionally or at church for an hour on Sunday morning until we start flipping each other off in the parking lot. (laughs) It's a whole lot harder to say, I'm going to live now all of my life, all of the moments of my day as though the kingdom's already fulfilled. I think that's what we're called to do as Christians. And it is so hard, especially when the world around us kind of 
pulls us into the chaos on a constant basis. We are already into another election season, and it seems to me that America is as divided as ever, if not more divided than ever before. And it's not just that we disagree, but that political discourse in general has become toxic. I do read the news regularly and I always vote. But other than that, it's tempting to me just because I'm uncomfortable with the divisiveness to kind of avoid the whole scene as much as I can. But I wonder what you think Christians could do to actually raise the level of political discourse in our communities. I, too, would prefer to practice avoidance, uh, <laughs> but I don't think we get to do that. I've become recently captivated with two ideas from sociology, the idea of belonging and the idea of othering. Belonging is necessary. We each need a place to stand. And I think since COVID-19 has emerged onto the scene, that's become even more important. I know that my family relationships, my friendships with people like you, my identification with Christchurch Cathedral, my sense of belonging, the place where I stand and find my center has become even more important to me in the last few months. It's essential emotionally, psychologically, but there's a shadow side. The light cast by our belonging casts a shadow and the shadow is othering. And that's when so often we define that to which we belong by castigating those who don't belong. We define the other as enemy, as threat, as something sometimes even less than human. And as a result of that, this is, it won't happen this year probably because football's mostly not going to be played. But the least damaging way we see this is every fall during football season where the people who are fans of the opposing team, somehow we read into that real animus, right? They, they <laughs> become someone we don't like because they cheer for another team. Our belonging becomes like a totem and a tribe. When it's totemic and tribal, by definition, if you're not part of the tribe, you're the enemy to the tribe. So we can chuckle about it during football season, but in the real world, it's devastating. The root of racism, the root of religious warfare, the root of our cultural antagonisms, it all, for me, comes back down to othering. And the most toxic way that that's furthered is through our speech. This week's gospel is where Jesus talks about it. It's not the things that go into us that defile us. It's Matthew 15, starting in verse 10, where it's the things that come out of us that defile and to me, that applies today when we see whether it's political leaders in Washington, both sides of the aisle, whether it's religious leaders, increasingly religious leaders, and sometimes even from the pulpit, or whether it's just our friends on Facebook. We have taken the default language that we use is the language of othering, of denigrating and dehumanizing people with whom we disagree that genie is hard to put back in the bottle. And what we as Christians can do first and foremost is just as simple as this, promise not to engage in it. The rhetoric of othering, we swear off of. We don't do it on Facebook. We don't do it as casual comments to other things other people post on Facebook. We don't abide it in conversation out in the world, masked and socially distanced, but conversation... <laughs> To me, it seems trite or it seems like not as big a deal as some of the other things, but I actually think that the language that the toxic othering language that we have become so accustomed to hearing and using is the greatest threat because it, it informs all of the other, virtually every other problem we face. It's like the gasoline you throw on the fire mm -hmm. of every other problem we face. Well, what happens is we keep drawing our circles smaller and smaller. 
And Jesus actually instructed us, he instructed his disciples to draw them wider. He said in in Mark, those who are not against us are for us. So it wasn't like if they're not a part of us, then they're automatically against us, but rather to assume if they're not working against us, then they're for us. So he was about drawing our circles wider and all this contemptuous language that we use these days is forcing us into very small islands. And it's not easy. I mean, the last part of this Sunday's gospel is the story of the Canaanite woman, the Gentile woman who Jesus himself initially ignores and then denigrates. And I assume that it's because Jesus is exhausted and fatigued. But when she persists in her vulnerability and in her need, his eyes open and then he embraces her. He extends the circle and embraces she who is a woman, a foreigner, a Gentile and has a demon possessed daughter. So Mm -hmm. she's four times the other. And Jesus's own eyes are open. So it's not easy. And in our own fatigue and exhaustion with the political reality in which we're living with the social reality, it's just easy to fall back and circle the wagons and shoot arrows at those outside. But I agree with you entirely. I think that at the end of the day, more than anything else, the gospel, it's again, it goes back to that image in Revelation of the gates of the holy city, heaven on earth, the gates always open. The gospel is really about that we all belong. All are the beloved of God, and no one is outside the bounds. So it is tricky to engage in political discourse, and there are some pitfalls. Over the last decade or more, I think we have watched some Christians align themselves too closely to political power, and it has undermined their moral leadership as Christians. So what do you think is the best way for the church to relate to the government and vice versa? I think, first of all, it is never the role of the church to speak out in uncritical support of our political leaders. There are political leaders whom I applaud more than others. There are political leaders whom, and governmental leaders that it seems to me are acting more faithfully than others when it comes to allowing themselves to be formed by the gospel. But they know what they got into. And I don't think that political and governmental leaders should expect the church to be their uncritical supporters. I think the church should always be at least half a step, if not a full step, on the outside. It is the job of the church, communities of faith, always to hold political and governmental leadership accountable. That's our job vis-a-vis the government. We should never be mano a mano with those in political power, any more than Jesus was, for that matter. Every year around the beginning of football season, so around this time, I tend to get a mass email that gets recirculated and recirculated. It imagines what would happen if everyone at a public school football game where there's not supposed to be prayer would spontaneously stand up together and pray the Lord's Prayer. And what a difference that would make. And I've always wanted to respond to that email and say, or we could not worry about standing up at a state-funded school function and all pray together, and instead all agree to go home from that football game and try to live the Lord's Prayer. If what we're about is the advent of God's kingdom in the world, 
then praying a prayer as though it's a set of magic words, a shibboleth of some kind, would be less important than actually living our lives in the world the way that Jesus would instruct us to live them. A second answer to your question about how Christians should engage political power, I certainly am not in favor of, like the National Prayer Breakfast always makes me nervous. I believe in prayer. I pray every day. But for there to be this uncomfortable wedding, it's the same reason, by the way, that at the churches I have served, we do not process the American flag, and we do not put the American flag in the front of the church anywhere near the altar, because that confluence of political and patriotic images, I'm patriotic, but that confluence of those images with the images of our faith just make me deeply uncomfortable. I would much rather see our political leaders raised in the faith and raised to be formed into the full stature of Christ so that their decisions are made with compassion and charity and justice. I'd much rather see that than see elected officials making overt Christian expressions. For example, the recent photo opportunity of the President of the United States in front of St. John's Lafayette Square, holding up a Bible. Whether or not one supports the president, whether or not one supports the current administration's policies, that struck me as nothing but a stunt. Mm-hmm. Very and hollow. Very hollow. I believe that the church as an institution is in danger of becoming morally bankrupt if we acquiesce to our political leaders using our faith as a stunt. I agree with that, Markley. I think that my Christian duty as also an American citizen is in part to vote for leaders who I believe stand for and will develop policies and laws that align with my vision of the kingdom of heaven on this earth. I think that's well said. I agree entirely. I don't think that all politicians have to be Christian, but I do look for faithful, loyal leadership when I go to vote. Not being a politician, I think that's sort of the best way I can participate is look for those qualities in our leaders. What are your hopes for our nation over the next few years? I'm glad you asked the question that way. If you had said, are you optimistic for our nation over the next <laughs> few years, I would honestly have a hard time answering that positively. I don't know that right now, as we sit and have this conversation, I am particularly optimistic in the short term. But hope and optimism are not the same thing. Optimism is a worldly notion, and hope is a Christian notion. And I am a person of hope. For me, hope means that somehow deeper than our challenges and even deeper than our anxieties, God's grace is at work and ultimately God's purposes will prevail. I'm about to start teaching a class on Revelation, and there's a whole heck of a lot of that book that I don't understand and frankly (laughs) don't care for. But the vision of that last chapter, it plucks my heartstrings as true. And so I guess my hope is in that, that the kingdom that Jesus proclaims at the beginning of the gospel is near and is in breaking. We get glimpses of it and they feed my hope. But my hope is and belief is that ultimately God's purposes will prevail. I share that hope. And I hope that 
even with all the troubles that we currently have, the real worries that our communities are immersed in. I hope that we're learning. I hope that we can pull together to address some of our needs. And when we do that, I believe that we'll be helping to bring to fulfillment to God's vision of this world. And I think that what you asked earlier, what can the church do? I talked about we can change the rhetoric. We can refuse to use othering language. We can also model that in our communities. Rather than a church becoming an advocate for a particular political point of view, which many do increasingly, we can provide contexts. This has been a hallmark of the Episcopal Church, right? We can provide contexts where people of faith and goodwill who start with the gospel but the gospel leads them to different places, can nevertheless come together in community. I think that's part of that proleptic living. We're the community where people all across the spectrum can nevertheless kneel together to ask for forgiveness, can receive the body and blood together, can uplift one another in prayer when we are in need, and can double our joys and share them when we're in plenty. I think the church can do that. We can do that when we are united in love, even across our differences and disagreements. Barkley, I'm grateful that you would have this conversation with me today. I'm also grateful that we do live in a nation in which we can speak freely about such difficult topics. I believe that our open, honest, courageous conversations will help us find our way. And I also believe that God hears our prayers. So Barkley, would you lead us in a prayer to close today? This prayer is from the prayer book. This is our prayer in times of conflict. Oh God, you have bound us together in a common life. Help us in the midst of our struggles for justice and truth to confront one another without hatred or bitterness and to work together with mutual forbearance and respect through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I want to thank all of our listeners for being with us today. If you are interested in Barclay's book, you'll find it on Amazon. The title is In the Midst of the City, The Gospel and God's Politics by Barclay Thompson. Please send in your comments and questions and listen again to us next time because our J-O-Y is not complete without you. This is a production of St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. Thanks to Stephen Bano, who composed and performed our theme music, and to Heidi Soule, our producer. Mm